Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Derek, how are you doing today, sir? Yeah, I'm doing, uh, well, okay, all things considered, but I'm, I'm here and I'm glad to be doing this work with you. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. Um, I am tired, man. I am really tired. Uh, full disclosure, I don't know that I'm as ready to talk about the Come Follow Me curriculum as I usually am, but the whole point of this podcast is to center the marginalized in Mormonism and use theology as a tool of liberation, among other things. So I don't think I'm going to move too far off base by by talking about this. But, uh, you know, the last few days were pretty rough for black folks. Uh, I'm sure you've seen the news. Um, right. Yeah. Um, starting with the whole Amy Cooper incident, which is perhaps the best case study out there right now of how little self-awareness is present in racist people. And I'll, you know, I'll tell you what I mean by that, but for our listeners who by chance may have missed the incident, what happened was Amy Cooper, a white woman and her dog, they were in central park and the dog wasn't on its leash. Christian Cooper, no relation, a black man and a birder, he was also in the park and he requested her to put her dog on its leash as the law required. This woman, Amy, she she got pretty upset and indignant and she said she was going to call the cops and tell them that an African-American man was threatening her. And she made good on that threat. She got on the phone. She stated the man's race multiple times with increasing hysterics. And Christian, fortunately, was recording the incident the whole time. And yeah, within 24 hours of that video hitting the internet, Amy had last, Amy had lost her job and her dog. And from what I can tell, her life is still going on a downward spiral. Like the, the whole thing is a mess. Um, but what was interesting about this case to me was the immediate fallout, the immediate aftermath. She would, uh, Amy Cooper, that is, she would go on to apologize for the whole thing. I don't know if you got a chance to read her apology, Derek. I heard um, quotes from it, but I didn't I didn't read the whole thing. Okay, well, these the quotes that you saw are probably all that matter. Like they're the primary thing that stood out to me. Um, but basically she said in her apology that she isn't a racist and that she didn't intend to hurt Christian. The, Wait, the, this we've... is yeah, sorry, go ahead. We've got the video. Like it's clear. Yes. I that's yes. I want to hear what you're going to say, but it's it's really clear. It, yeah, that's that's what I'm getting to. Uh this is what I meant when I said that this is a great case study in how little self-awareness racism has. And this is something a lot of people fail to understand, which is uh one reason why I really need people to pay attention to this incident. The fact that this woman could act in such a, as you said, a clear way, a, a demonstrably racist manner and still deny being racist or still denying intent to harm him, that tells us a couple of things. One of them is that believing oneself to be racist isn't a requirement to act in a racist manner. Like you don't have to be able to identify it 
and you certainly don't have to be able to define it. In fact, I would actually go as far as to say that the majority of the problematic people I've interacted with do not know what racism is. They don't know what it looks like and they don't know how to identify it in themselves. That ignorance is likely part of the racism equation. Uh, Secondly, and probably more importantly, was that she demonstrated that you can misunderstand both the impact and the intent of your own actions when you act in a racist manner. I, I can't tell you how many times that I personally acknowledged something problematic in someone's behavior or words. And then they'll say something like, oh, I didn't mean it like that. I didn't mean it in that way. And then I just want to be like, yes, you you did mean it that way. What What you didn't mean was for it to be a problem. What you didn't mean was to feel guilty. That is what Amy did. She says she didn't mean to harm the guy right after she weaponized her whiteness multiple times precisely for that purpose. She clearly meant to harm the guy, like she clearly meant to harm Christian. What she didn't intend was to look bad. She didn't intend the fallout and losing both her job and her dog. Like I'll say it again, you can act in a racist way and not understand that you're doing it or why you're doing it. The big lesson to me, or one of the biggest lessons from this whole Amy Cooper incident is that racism doesn't require self-awareness to operate. I'd even argue that it operates better without it. Yeah, and to me, I think what's going on is we've got different people with different definitions of racism. Yeah, I think some people have a very narrow definition of racism that basically you have to be saying the n-word in a white hood yep in order to be a racist and and think oh i'm not that or it has to be like deliberate conscious differential treatment of someone based only on their race and Mm -hmm. that neglects the whole context that we swim in and uh it's just there's so many things to to notice about this like she said these things knowing she was on video she yeah. threatened him yeah. and tried to intimidate him you knowing she know, she's aware of what cops have done to black yep. men at the uh, request of white women this is yep. all the way back to Emmett Till all the way back to the yep. 19th century mm-hmm. we've got she knows what she was doing she yep. knows exactly what to say to make a black man uh, uh, to try to make a black man afraid and she said exactly yep. probably what yeah it's just like boggling why she felt that the world would back her up on this. She knew she was going to be on uh, uh, famous, right? She's mm-hmm. on video. She knew, mm-hmm. and um, fortunately, we should say that he that Christian Cooper is still alive. I, I hate to say yes. at least he's still alive because yeah. that's that's not the right thing to say. But I just want for people who may not know the story, at least we have his side of the story on this. Mm-hmm. We do have his side of the story. And I really, you know, this could have ended up totally differently if Christian's phone wasn't charged, if he didn't bring his phone out, or if he actually stuck around for the cops to show up. I think another thing to name is that there's this game that a lot of white people want to play when there's something in the news. Like you hear an incident and white people want to say, um, was it racist or not? And I think oh, I think the the better question is to ask, 
how much was racism in play? Because it's always in the background, it's always in the context, and how much was racism in play? And also what kind of racism? Because mm-hmm. there's, there's the racism of, for example, Joe Biden, which is based on an over-familiarity with the black community to where he feels he can speak to and for black people in a way that's not appropriate mm-hmm. versus Trump's racism. Right. That's, they're different. And I think asking mm-hmm. how much was racism in play and what kind of racism is a better question than was this racist or not, which is a completely binary thing. Right. Like we in the queer right. theory world, we're we're over these binaries, like these all or nothing, either mm-hmm. or thinking. So that was that particular incident. And then there was a couple of weeks ago, we had the Breonna Taylor case, which uh, which was just very tragic in and of itself. I don't think we saw enough conversation about that particular about that particular incident, but it was just it was just horribly tragic. Right. And uh, now we have the George Floyd case, where an unarmed black man was placed in cuffs for allegedly forging a check, and then he had his neck knelt on by a police officer as he struggled and cried for relief. He he would die later as a result of his injuries for allegedly forging a check. What these, thankfully, I mean, I don't even want to say thankfully because it's not like justice has been served yet, but all four officers involved in that case were were fired. We also have to acknowledge that the police report in this particular case was inconsistent with the video of Floyd's last moments and that if we had the video, it's likely, if we didn't have the video, it's likely that all four of those officers would still have their jobs. Now, having said all of that, I know we have listeners who want to know what to do and how to move forward, which is respectable. I I do appreciate that. I applaud that. Many of our listeners are also at different stages in figuring out how to do their own anti-racism work. And I cannot tell anybody what's what's best for them, nor nor do I really believe that's appropriate. But there are some some basic principles that... uh, that are informed by our theology, that are informed by our faith, that I believe people can start implementing today. So uh, I'm going to take a page out of your book real quick, Derek, and uh, talk about okay. creating a little bit of Christ-like change real quick. Oh, good. Yes. But uh, one of those things is cultivating a habit of regular education. This doesn't have to be intense by any means. It can be following activists and public figures on social media. It can be reading books by anti-racist authors like Michelle Alexander or Ibrahim Kendi. Uh, It could be Googling topics and think pieces on your questions. It can be like, it could really be anything that you are most comfortable with. Uh, You can attend talks and stuff like whatever you want. The key is to simply know better and knowing better is a big step toward being able to mourn with those who mourn. You are in a much better position to know what it is the black community needs. Another principle also derived from the baptismal covenant found in Mosiah 18 is simply confronting the racism. Standing as a witness of God at all times and in all things and in all places includes witnessing to folks that racism is wrong. If you see racism, your baptismal covenant basically demands that you acknowledge it and especially knowing how not self-aware racism is, you're not only doing black folks a favor, 
You're not only doing yourself a favor, but you're giving folks exhibiting racist behavior an opportunity to do better. You're giving somebody grace, even though you are calling them out. Like that is, that is a good thing. That is a win, win, win situation for everybody involved. And that brings me to one more principle I see here, which is setting boundaries. Um, uh, people that have displayed enough courage to confront and condemn racism also need to know how to appropriately deal with it. For example, yesterday I saw several white people on social media post expressions of condolences and solidarity with the black community in our time of mourning, which I do generally appreciate. That is a good thing. That is a great way to break white solidarity. This is a great way to know, let people know where you stand. What happened in almost every instance I saw, though, was there would be a friend of theirs hopping in the conversation and doing something that you already alluded to, Derek. They would ask about whether or not this was really race motivated or they would just otherwise derail the conversation in some way. They, 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 they might defend the police officers. They might claim that racism isn't apparent. They might talk about the facts we don't have or something else. Uh, the, the point is they interrupt the conversation to do something other than mourn with or comfort black people. And this is highly inappropriate. You, you, you don't barge into a funeral and start asking questions of all those who are grieving. You don't minimize the death of the deceased. You don't do anything like that. And now people that have originally posted these things as an expression of solidarity or in an effort to mourn with those who mourn, now they're arguing with racists instead of comforting black folks. And you can't defeat white supremacy on its own terms. You do have to engage racism when you come across it. That is necessary, but you almost must be careful to not entertain it. You don't want to get dragged into debates about black humanity with the same people who interrupt the morning of black life. Request that such individuals show respect to the black community as they mourn, and you can even point them to resources on anti-racism if you'd like to uh, give them a reason for your mourning or your solidarity. If they're your friends, they should respect that. But in most cases, in my experience, these people are not acting in good faith and they are simply looking for an opportunity to be validated in the midst, validated in their own white supremacy in the midst of black death. So we need to set a hard limit on the racist behavior that we're going to tolerate one time, one time, because everyone is entitled to make a mistake. But we are going to set a hard limit on the racist behavior we'll tolerate before we start reconsidering our associations with certain people. Most of those people are not interested in understanding black pain, but they're rather interested in, again, feeling comfortable in their own racism, and they need to start learning that that has consequences, just like Amy is learning. We don't normalize the presence of white supremacy in the middle of black morning. That's really what this is all about. And uh, I think that's a good place for a lot of us to start. Yeah, thank you so much for those things. You know, it, I wonder if it's a good idea to end up making a special bonus episode where we talk about allying more 
in more detail and get some more background. I think that is worthy of its own episode. Certainly. Um, well, uh, we could so always, yeah. we could always so stay tuned for that. Yeah. Yeah. We could, we could certainly, uh, put that to the collaborators and see what they think. But uh, I do think that a lot of our audience would gain a lot of positive things from that. Anyway, I think that's all I really wanted to say about these incidents. Did you have anything you wanted to add, Derek? Well, I mean, it's not my place to speak to or for black people, of course, but I just want to say as a white person, um, there's work that we need to do. And this work shouldn't be placed on uh, the black community. Um, we need to step up and do what we're supposed to. I think really understanding our, the way we've been so socialized as white, because racism is a white people problem that white people need to fix under, of course, black leadership. But I think it's like, for example, white people are generally socialized to think that everything, every opinion we have is worth saying. And if I've got something to mm-hmm. say, I have the right to say it. And I really don't. Uh, um, and I think for most of us who are trying to be allies at this point, we need to do a lot more listening than talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and just really listen and learn. And without having to, to, to you know, there's nothing that I need to do to post on if there's a black person who's post something. I really don't need to comment. Uh, I, I don't, right? Uh, I, or at least I shouldn't think that whatever I have to say is automatically worthy of a comment. It mm-hmm. might not be. And I think that goes to the deepest of our Christian values of, of really mourning with those who mourn and loving our neighbor as ourselves and giving them room, the, the same room that we would want. Yeah. So that's really all I have to say on that. All um, right. I'm looking forward to collaborating on a maybe an, a special bonus episode. Definitely. Definitely. So if there's nothing else we want to say about that, is there any other news we want to briefly address before we dive into the uh, Come Follow Me? No, I think that's it. All right. Then before we do that, just wanted to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion on all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. We are in Alma chapter five through seven. Derek, do you have any context you want to give to these uh, chapters before we dive in? Well, all I want to say is that here we've got the genre of sermon. We've got several sermons here, and these are really contextual in, in that you have a living prophet speaking to the needs of the people at that particular time and place. And it's going to be very practical. It's going to be result in change and the hope of repentance and changed behavior and the renewal of a community. So this isn't really theoretical. This is very practical. And I think uh, we'll get a lot of practical details in these texts in, in uh, Alma 5 through 7. Yeah, definitely. So Alma 5, we have Alma preaching a sermon to the people of Zarahemla. We know Zarahemla is you know, the place basically where all the Nephites have ended up. And then by the time we get to section, or sorry, chapter seven, Alma will be discussing, he will be preaching to the people of Gideon who seem to be in a significantly better place spiritually. 
Now, Alma chapter 5 is pretty significant in Mormon culture because it's basically the way in which we conduct our own worthiness interviews with ourselves. There are like 50 questions in this whole chapter, all of which are geared towards helping us figure out where we stand with our creator. And uh, some of these questions hit harder than others. A lot of them are geared toward figuring out how we treat people. And that seems to be where we're going to be spending most of our time today is talking about these verses that highlight or where Alma feels to tell us a little bit about how to treat people. Now, uh, I've already talked quite a bit. Uh, Derek, is there any place you want to start in Alma 5? Yeah, let's just go ahead and start with Alma 5, verses 6 and 7. 6 and 7, okay. Yeah, I won't read the whole verses, but basically there's, it talks about the remembrance. Have you sufficiently retained in remembrance the captivity of your fathers? Have you retained in remembrance his mercy? Um, And about delivering them. This is... uh, Alma's talking about the deliverance of the church during the time of King Noah. And this teaches me that one of the best tools that the marginalized have is remembrance. Remembrance can be a source of hope. Mm -hmm. And in terms of God's acts, that's exactly what Alma's doing here. Alma's reminding them of what the previous generation, um, some may have still been alive at that point, what they experienced the deliverance at the hand of God and to just remember that. And so in terms of God's acts of deliverance, the best predictor of the, of the future is the past. Mm. And Alma revives this living hope in God's justice. You know, so many people, a lot of people ask me, that's probably one of the biggest questions that people have for me as someone who thinks about, you know, the queer situation in the church is, well, how do you know the church is going to change? And my answer is remembrance. Like, has there ever been a time that God left his people without deliverance Mm. indefinitely? You know, Mm. I mean, obviously it takes time. But if you look at this, there's this watchfulness and vigilance that Alma really wants to cultivate in the people. And I think that's something that we have. We queer people can look back at almost every change in the history of the church, you know, not just the modern church, but in the ancient world. There's so many times where something goes wrong in the church, even for a long time, and then Mm -hmm. God intervenes. And even on um, LGBTQ issues, we've already had a lot of change. We should remember that so many changes have already been made from the 60s and 70s. I think a lot of the changes we've, uh, encountered so far, like um, getting away from the um, orientation as mental illness model, the criminal mm-hmm. model, the idea that it can be changed model, yeah. um, the idea that the orientation itself is a defect, all these things. Like when you go back and look at how Spencer W. Kimball's attitude, if he would say that the church will never change on those things, and they did. Mm-hmm. Like so many of the things, and we should keep that in remembrance. Like we've got a long way to go, but we should keep in remembrance what God has already done for us. And that is, like I said, the sort of remembrance can be a source of hope for us. I was just going to briefly interject and ask if you had heard that quote about somebody saying that the most important word in the scriptures is remember. Right. I've heard that. Yeah. Um, this is one of the reasons why I am prone to believing that is simply because remembering what has happened in our past is super 
empowering to how we approach our future. You've already, I mean, you've already said that, but I just want to add my witness that one of the most powerful tools we have on the margins is remembering our past as it will be instrumental in informing how we approach our struggle now and what we can expect in the future. Like the past is the reason why I can't expect change. And I don't think that's insignificant. Yes. Yeah. And I think watchfulness and um, remembrance is a key to to avoid propagating error because we've got this cultural thing in the church that people hear something and then they just repeat it. Yeah. And they don't know where it came from. And I, I think this really happens a lot on the mission field. Like missionaries <laughs> hear some interesting idea and they think, oh, this is some cool thing. And, and somehow it gets propagated. And I have no idea where the original source of it was. Mm-hmm. Like the, these ideas that, the harder you work, the the hotter your spouse will be. Like that's not in our sources, but somehow every missionary has heard it. They just mm-hmm. repeat this because it sounds cool. Right. And I'd like to talk a little bit about this. And I'm going to use the example of Codex 109. It's a manuscript of the Greek New Testament housed in the British Library. Okay. And I talked a little bit th- about this on Facebook. Some people may have seen this post, but I want to talk an- about another very interesting thing about the scribe of this manuscript made one of the most embarrassing blunders probably in all of New Testament textual transmission. Oh, it's it's really kind of, it's really bad. Here's what happened. So, you know the genealogy of Jesus in the third chapter of Luke. It starts out with, and Jesus was supposedly the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, all the way up to the son of Adam, the son of God. So, it, it it's a, a reverse genealogy compared to what Matthew has, starting with Abraham and ending with Jesus. We've got it going the other way in Luke. Okay. And apparently, the scribe of Codex 109 was copying from a manuscript that had this genealogy listed in two columns, which is fair, you know. But instead of coli- copying these columns onto his own manuscript the correct way, you know, doing one column first and then the second... He went horizontally across the columns. Hmm. Uh, and so then every, practically every son was the son of the wrong father. Jeez. He was not paying attention. You know, the genealogy ends, you know, Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. That ended up in the middle of the list. God was uh, the son of someone else. And the whole the whole ancestry started with fairies, you know. Um <laughs> So it was it's just a big mess because this scribe was not very watchful. And I just think that's what that's so what some of us do in the church many times we're on autopilot. We don't even think about what we're saying. We just we just pass something on and right. and and I think um watchfulness and vigilance and remembrance is a great tool to see how, you know, how errors can creep into what we're doing and what we're saying just completely unintentionally. And I think vigilance and intentionality, and re- that's the whole point of the sacrament, is to yeah. remember not to just go through the motions and be on autopilot. And I think so many people think about LGBT issues on autopilot. Mm. They just repeat something they heard. They don't really think about it in any deeper analytical way. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this before. Mm-hmm. And they just pass on something without actually thinking through what they're saying. And they end up with this blunder mm-hmm. like like this one scribe did. Mm-hmm. Like, it's just so incredible how so much and such significant errors can stem from such a seemingly 
trivial thing or such a trivial beginning. You know what I'm saying? Like, and this whole thing with uh, LGBTQs, like we just start saying it one day and now we're living it. We're oppressing people with it. We are hurting people with it. And it's going to take a long time to undo. Like, we're not just undoing an administrative error. We're undoing what is essentially a deeply rooted cultural uh, problem that has tremendous implications for many people. Right. Yeah, let's go on, and and, because this connects with what you have to say on uh, verses 30 and 32. Okay. I'll just start quoting. It says, And again I say unto you, Is there one among you who doth make a mock of his brother, or that heapeth upon him persecutions? Woe unto such and one, for he is not prepared. And the time is at hand that he must repent, or he cannot be saved. Yea, even woe unto all ye workers of iniquity. Repent, repent, for the Lord God has spoken it. This is another reason I wanted to take time to discuss the happenings of this week. This is basically, to me, what racism is. This Uh is what it looks like. It is making a mock of people. It is heaping upon them persecutions. And I don't know how we can read these verses. And this is another reason I say that racism is is not self-aware, is because you know how a lot of members of the church will read these verses, but they don't really think of pers- they don't really think of racism, which by definition will mock people and will heap upon them persecutions. And I saw this a lot just in the last 24 hours. I saw uh, white people interrupt the morning, interrupt actual mourning of black people to in essence, you know, challenge their mourning, to question the morning, to offer a devil's advocate position or something like that. Like to me, this is a mockery. It is so mm-hmm, disrespectful mm-hmm. to basically interrupt mourning so that your own feelings and your own self can be centered. And you know, it's also another form of persecution. This is heaping upon black people more emotional labor and more emotional stress in addition to their mourning. Like, this is just what I saw in the last 24 hours. Obviously, there are greater systemic and structural issues of racism to deal with. Like, we see all kinds of persecutions being heaped up, heaped upon people of color in the judicial system, right. in, yeah. uh, in the workforce, in education, in healthcare. Like, this extends to every system of American, of American life. But we are either complicit in it or we play an active part in it when we are silent or when we suppose that what we have to say or things we want to do are more important than the lives of people of color. So like that, that's what I heard when I read this particular verse and I will just echo what uh, the conclusion of it says that woe be unto such a person. He is not prepared. Like how can you go to the celestial kingdom and think you're better than people that are there? Like you are just not prepared if this is a mentality that you embrace, a mentality that you espouse, and you have to repent. And I read the word repent as the way that it's actually intended to be read. It's not just to be sorry and ask for forgiveness. It's to change. When I read the word repent this time around, I read it as change. The time is at hand that you must change or you can't be saved. We are seeing the opportunities. We are seeing the conversations happening all the time. 
you cannot avoid the conversation of race issues in America anymore. It is front and center. It's all over social media. What are you going to do about it now? Like, are you going to continue interrupting conversations so that you can center your own comfort to make sure that your white supremacy is validated? Or are you going to make an effort to listen and to change? Like, that is what this verse to me seems to be asking. And I hope people, when they read the word repent, they see the word change. When people read these uh, phrases of making a mock of your brother and heaping upon them persecutions, they think about they think about racism and they make more of an active effort to undo those things. That, that's what I read when I went into these verses. What did, what did you see? Yeah, I, I saw that too. And I, that's naming that is important. And I, as a white person need to name that my own complicity in racism and white supremacy. And I mean, despite all my good intentions, I'm still a product of my system and I should never yeah. see myself as non-racist. Mm-hmm. What I should say is that I'm anti-racist and I'm working against the racism that I see uh, elsewhere and including myself. Right, right. And that's that's really the repentance process at work here. Mm. Absolutely. And, and I want to talk a little bit about COVID as well because COVID oh, is... Okay exposing the injustices that have been here all along is just magnifying the effect in certain ways. Okay. But COVID is also a great time to test our love for our neighbor. And here's one spiritual practice that, because you know, I've heard, there's these people out there that say that, oh, I don't need a mask and I don't want to you know, do this and <laughs> God's going to protect me and I'm going to bring my gun because I, you know, God won't protect me there, but I don't need a mask. Yeah, yeah. And one spiritual practice, see, this is what I love about our Latter-day Saint tradition is it's not just a Sunday morning thing. Every part of our life should be infused with spiritual meaning and power. Mm-hmm. Every every act we could do in the name of Christ. And so one spiritual practice that I've started doing is saying a prayer to bless the act of putting on a mask before I go out in public oh. and marking it as a sacred obligation. Mm. And then I say something like this. I thank thee, O God, for blessing thy people with the commandment to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Yeah. In fulfillment in fulfillment of this commandment, O Lord, I place this mask upon the body thou hast given me in the name of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So I can participate and infuse a deeper joy and meaning into that act, which normally would have just been a humble, you know, daily trivial act but now it's actually the fulfillment of a commandment is a consecrated act now yes yeah and so that's one thing that i've been doing as a way of resisting all those people who say well this mask thing like where's you know and they're using their faith as a way of of deflecting their obligation to their neighbor i mean Mm -hmm. that's a commandment Mm -hmm. and and then speaking of covid Many are, like I said, are tempted to go without a mask in public saying that the Lord will protect them. But I need to remind everyone that one of, like, go look at Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. <laughs> one of Satan's temptations of Jesus was literally to invite him to do something risky, knowing that the Lord would protect him. You know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, absolutely. Like, throw yourself out the temple and God will save you. Nah, 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 nah. You don't need a mask. Yeah. Like, that's exactly satanic thinking Mm -hmm. to test God and to not use all of God's blessings on us like a mask, like our own brain, like our medical science. Like that is part Mm -hmm. of the way God, you know, God uses means. Mm -hmm. Well, now, now there are miracles in, in the ancient world and in the modern world, 
but we shouldn't separate that from the daily things that God has given us to keep us safe. Yes. And so, you know, Jesus didn't take that temptation, and neither should we. Definitely. I think I remember talking about this a few episodes ago about how, you know, Jesus is not an insurance policy about how we should not expect divine power to cover our stupidity or our willful shirking of our divine responsibilities to love other people. And I just love how you made this act of caring for other people, this making this act of putting on a mask, a divine one, a consecrated one. Like I love that so much. And I, I really hope that people consider that. Like I'm definitely going to start doing that now, uh, <laughs> uh, consecrating the act of putting on a mask. And I hope that right. other people can see the power in using the means, which, you know, we were able to create for ourselves to, to live into this commandment of loving other people by protecting them and being responsible and, and accountable to them. This is how yeah. we be our brother's keeper. We wear a mask. Well, I want to move on and talk a little bit about Alma 5, verse 46. Okay. So Alma says, Behold, I have fasted and prayed many days that I might know these things of myself. And now I do know of myself that they are true, for the Lord God hath made them manifest unto me by his Holy Spirit. And this is the spirit of revelation which is in me. It is very important for all of us to know individually of ourselves. He says that that phrase, of myself, twice mm-hmm. here. And knowing for yourself what is true on your own terms is one of the greatest powers we have, especially those of us who are in a marginalized position. Mm. And this serves as a great checks and balances within the church. It ennobles and empowers the individual. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we never need to take someone else's word for it. We all have the right to the spirit of revelation within us. Mm-hmm. There's a, a really good quote by Brigham Young. I won't read the whole thing. I'll just post it on Facebook at some point. But he basically chastises his people for not inquiring of themselves whether what their leaders are saying is true. And that really frustrates God's plan in salvation for us. Mm-hmm. And Brigham Young is saying, no, just don't take our word for it. Just because we're in office, that doesn't mean that you're done thinking. Right. And I, I just love that quote. I, I'll post it on Facebook It's probably better to read it than to hear me uh, read it. (laughs) But uncritical trust in our leaders actually thwarts the purposes of God in our salvation. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's about, our salvation is about growth and development in mortality. Like we came, like if the the idea was just to be obedient and not thinking, we should have just stayed in without the mortal experience. Mm -hmm. But here we're on this planet to learn initiative and responsibility and we need to have the same needful, uh, the same watchfulness and vigilance that I talked about earlier when discussing the um, uh, the 14th century Codex 109 and that error. Like we have to just double check and triple check. That's the whole point of walking with yeah. God, is double and triple yeah. checking things. You know, I mm-hmm. I think about this every time I go out to my car, because the way I go to my car, the driveways behind my house, I don't go. I approach my car from the front of my car, the back of my house. I don't even, the way I naturally go, I don't see what's behind my car. Every time I drive out, I go around the back of my car to make sure that there's not a child there or a pet there. You know, I'm sure it's like a one out of thousand chance that there's going to be someone behind my car. But Mm -hmm. 
I, I I thought to myself, well, what if there what if there is that one out of ten thousand chance that there's a kid there? I had better not run over this kid. And uh, there's never been a kid there every, every day, every time I drive my car. That is the type of vigilance that our church members have not had for the LGBTQ community. They're willing to just keep driving over us and not even think, like, should I stop and double check if I'm going in the right direction? Should I just double check I might hurt someone inadvertently? They haven't even stopped mm. with, with that vigilance. I like that a lot. And speaking of double and triple checking what we've received, we've heard, you know, messages around modesty, and we should really think critically about those. Let's let's go in. Did you have anything to say about verses 53 and 54? You know what? I don't think I need to. Well, I just wanted to notice something here in verse 53. It says, Yea, will ye still persist in the wearing of costly apparel and setting your hearts <laughs> upon the vain things of the world, upon your riches? And... Here's one thing that most people don't realize, especially throughout the Bible. Um, but when the scriptures talk about clothing and modesty, they are almost always talking about economic modesty, not sexual modesty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, when you see the scriptures talk about nakedness, they're not talking about about sexual nakedness. They're talking about the poverty of not having enough clothing to mm-hmm. wear. Um. And how we should, you know, serve and protect and defend the naked and, and, and give them clothing. It's not about sex at right. all. And the flaunting of personal wealth is the problem the here because immodesty. that flies. Yes, that is what's immodest. Mm-hmm. And that flies counter to the desires of God um, for God's people. Mm-hmm. And we should remember these things when we talk about modesty because there's this whole cultural thing that's been propagated around you know, especially this idea that women are responsible for straight men's <laughs> thoughts. Yeah. I mean, that that's just dumb. Yeah. And even Jesus himself when he addressed this by saying, if, if a woman causes you to sin, don't tell her to cover up more. You should pluck your eye out. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So that's that's really what we should do is think about our messaging around modesty and um, women's agency and integrity on their own terms. <laughs> Stop telling women to cover up. Start telling dudes to cut off their penises. Well, I mean, it, sometimes it's the, the messages you want to hear the least that you need to hear the most. I concur. And uh, speaking of which, also in that verse, something I think I noticed here was just this idea that people who are trying to get closer to God through perhaps unconventional means are often persecuted. And I see that in particular with the LGBTQ community. You see a lot of people trying to carve out a way for themselves in their own spiritual journeys. Yet you will get all kinds of uh, straight supremacy coming your way. People that are saying, just follow the prophet or you're going off the, you're going off the rails. You're going apostate because and they will suppose that they're better than you simply because you're trying to find a home for yourself in a culture that doesn't have a place for you or that right. doesn't show a place for you. So you're trying to find one for yourself. We see this way too often in the church of people trying to create a space for themselves when those around them are not doing that or they think they're doing it simply because they're telling that you that you don't have a place there, which just does not make any sense to me at all. But you know, this is just something that 
I see in the church is we see a lot of people supposing themselves better than members of the LGBTQ community simply because they are trying to find their own way to follow the gospel. They are trying to find something that works for them. They are going to try to find something that gives them the same privileges and blessings as everybody else. And simply because it's not the conventional way, there will be people subscribing to straight supremacy who will suppose themselves to be better than you and suppose to counsel you even though they've never spent a moment in your shoes, even though they've never spent any substantial amount of time thinking about how difficult it is to be in your situation. And the big irony is they actually have a lot that they could learn from us if they would only listen. Absolutely. Because our faith has been tried and tested. We have developed an individual and deep and abiding faith in God. And if yes. you've just been going through the motions, going through the checklist and having outsourcing and all of your spiritual development to some other authority and just expecting everyone to spoon feed anything, every, every, anything and everything to you, you don't really have anything yeah. of yourself. Uh, this goes back to like knowing it of yourself. Like there is no way an LGBT person can coast through the church just on someone else's testimony. Correct. It, it just won't happen. Correct. We who are here in the church, we know it's true. We know that this is God's work. We would not be here. We wouldn't be able to handle all of these things that are thrown at us unless we knew that this is absolutely where we need to be. Like we have a faith that can move the world. Mm-hmm. We have a faith that can move mountains. Like I, I wish people would learn from us and not just condemn mm-hmm. us. I mean, this is the whole meaning of the first shall be last. And yes, I have, sir. You know, the first shall be last. I just, I really think that on judgment day, a lot of straight people are going to, are going to be there. The books are going to be open and a lot of straight people are going to look at us and say, wow, I wish I had been gay my entire <laughs> life because they will envy what the Lord has in store for us who are gay mm-hmm. in the church. Um, the Lord has something amazing for us, something way better than than straight people or gay people can even imagine. And I think once people see what the Lord has in store for us LGBTQ children, everyone's going to say, wow, I should have been them. Mm-hmm. I wish I would have been LGBT my whole life. It would have been worth it. But now they're just going to be stuck with whatever level of spiritual insight they attained in their life. That reminds me of some, uh, of a tweet that I saw one of our listeners put out. Uh, they were talking about something about all the issues that they've dealt with as a queer member of the church. And they said something along the lines of the revelation they received was that they asked for the accelerated course, the accelerated course of life, being queer, dealing with yeah. mental health issues, And then they went on to say how that has basically been the course of their entire life. Like when they were in school, you know, they did accelerated courses. They, and now, and in life they're doing Mm -hmm. accelerated courses because that's just totally on brand for them. So I totally buy into this idea of, you know, members of the LGBTQ community being the first in that sense, simply because they have had, and I hesitate to use the word opportunity but it's the best word I have right now Mm -hmm. to basically learn the lessons that the rest of us should have been able to like learn the lessons that the rest of us have should have been learning as we watched your journey. 
And that's going to be a sad thing to experience. I don't look forward to seeing how much I have not learned in this life that I could have if I'd only been more humble. And I feel like that's going to be a lot of straight folks in, uh, in the life to come is seeing that they are last pretty much because of what we see in these verses. They suppose themselves to be better and mm-hmm. they did not take the opportunity to learn from the people who were on that accelerated course, for lack of a better word, to spiritual empowerment, spiritual enlightenment, whatever else you want to call it. Again, I'm saying that carefully. I don't want to enter territory that's blasphemous and saying that mm-hmm. being in your situation is a blessing. But you have to acknowledge it. We have to be able to acknowledge that the spiritual resilience that LGBTQ folks have came at a price and they will be rewarded for that. Yeah, I think the LGBTQ community would be divided on whether it's an opportunity or a blessing. Um, I'm in the camp that says it's a blessing. Like I totally think that I probably chose to be gay and chose to come to this earth as a gay person. I feel it's a calling. Like I signed up saying, God, uh-huh. yeah, please let me be gay and please let me be born into a family that loves the Bible and I'll find my way back to you. I probably think right. I can't say that as doctrine, but that's what I imagine poetically in my head. Like I don't think this is an affliction that that I got cursed with. I mean, I think I courageously chose this with the ferocity of a lion saying, look, I like I want to be born gay. So I, you know, the whole, I Mm. love this idea of the preexistence can help us um, split the paradox between where were you born gay or did you chose, choose to be gay? And I can say, well, I chose to be born gay. (laughs) So (laughs) um, now there are others in the LGBTQ community that have a absolutely valid view the other direction and, and probably will say, this is, this is so awful that we shouldn't, uh, it would be abusive to say that this is a blessing uh, and that, and they right. have they have the right to say that too. But, but yeah, that's definitely valid. Um, yeah, and speaking of this, I want to jump on to Alma six verse five because here we've got this word liberal, and the word liberal we've had this political connotation to it. But what it, what it really means is generous. Um, now mm-hmm. I would that you should understand that the word of God was liberal unto all that none were deprived of the privilege of assembling themselves together to hear the word of God. And I think mm-hmm. liberality and um, equality are just amazing Book of Mormon values. I think in some ways the Book of Mormon speaks a little bit more strongly to equal- equality than the Bible does. I mean the Bible does too, but you have to do a lot of work in the context uh, to unpack what it would have meant in its historical times and then you really get the message of equality. But you don't see the word equality a lot in the Bible. Um right. But equality is this common thread throughout the Book of Mormon. And what we see is that all of these structures, these sacred structures, are in place to serve equality. And almost all the tragedies in the text of the Book of Mormon arise from inequality. And Mm -hmm. I think the Book of Mormon, together with Joseph Smith's own tragic experiences, were the major factors in why Joseph Smith became a civil rights activist. You know, normally we don't call him that. Uh, you know, he's a prophet and, and that, but but he absolutely was a civil rights activist, especially around religious rights. Mm-hmm. And I just want to read this uh, letter from 1839 that Joseph Smith wrote to a, a non-member, Isaac Gallard. Joseph said, Be assured, sir, that I have the most liberal sentiments and feelings of charity towards all sects, parties, and denominations, and the rights and liberties of conscience. I hold most sacred and dear, 
and despise no man for differing with me in matters of opinion. And I love that. People ask, well, like, very few people ask, well, how would a Joseph Smith looked at the um, the cause of marriage equality here in, in the past few decades in the U.S.? Like, which side would he have been on? I really, th- I absolutely think he would have been in, in favor of civil marriage equality. Like, he would have looked at and said, like, that's your life. Um, you've got your conscience. Um, I really think he would have been very pro-marriage equality. What do you mm-hmm. think? I think he would have been too, and that's solely on the merit that he literally saw so many changes, so many introductions of new ideas, foreign ideas to Christianity into the church. Like, I, I don't think anything would have surprised Joseph Smith really, yeah. simply because he was so accustomed to breaking away from convention just in the ushering in of Mormonism. And I, I love what he said. I'm not going to get the words right exactly because I don't have them in front of me. But in his 1844 presidential campaign uh, materials, the views of General Smith, I think the, the document is called, it said, like, why should we treat black folks any less just because they their spirit is clothed with a darker skin than ours? Like, he he is starting to get some things already in 1844. You know, he was a prison abolitionist in the same document. He called for prison abolition. And mm. I really think I should start letting people know that I'm an abolitionist too. I'm a prison abolitionist. I'm a police abolitionist. I really think that our society would be better off without prisons and without police. I know that seems radical, but it's no more radical right. than what Isaiah 2 says about you know, the ideal of we need to beat our swords into plowshares and not have war and violence anymore and that the wolf will lie down with the lamb. That's the abolition of police. That's the abolition of tools of violence. Like using force to get someone to behave is probably the least effective uh, remedy. Um, anyway, I've I've gone way off what I was going to say, I, what I thought I was going to say. <laughs> It's all good, man. We, uh, I mean, we just talking now, which is cool. Is there anything else you want to throw in there? We're almost at the hour mark. Let me just talk a little bit about the text in Alma 7. So here we have in this Alma 7, verses 23 and 27, it says, we've got this great text that's almost parallel to the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It says, and now I would that ye should be humble and be submissive and gentle, easy to be entreated, full of patience and long suffering, being temperate in all things, being diligent in keeping the commandments of God at all times, asking for whatsoever things ye stand in need, both spiritual and temporal. Always returning thanks unto God for whatsoever things ye do receive, and see that ye have faith, hope, and charity, and then ye will always abound in good works. And I love that the the fact that asking for what you need, both spiritual and temporal, is listed here as a fruit of the Spirit. This tells me that standing up for yourselves mm. is a fruit of the Spirit. Like, I am on fire with the Spirit every time I think about my dignity before God and what God has for me. And it's also a commandment of God for us to ask for our needs. You know, we see the ask, seek, and knock text mm-hmm. in Matthew chapter 7. And, and I, I love that idea. So I, my Greek professor in undergrad, his name was Norman Beck. 
and he taught at a Lutheran school, and he taught this very vividly. He asked his classes this question. Imagine somehow that there was only one copy of the Bible left in the world, and it was in this building. And also suppose that there's a person who uses a wheelchair here who cannot get out without our assistance in the case of a fire. If there is a fire, and you had to choose one or the other to save, and you couldn't save both, which would you choose? The person or the Bible? <laughs> and many students squirmed and wrestled with this question and felt very uncomfortable. It was, it was a tough decision for them. Right Now, right. I, you know me. I had no struggle with this question at all. I have committed my entire life to studying the Bible. I love the Bible. That's not in question. But without any reservation, I'd rather see the last copy of the Bible destroyed than mm. sacrifice someone else on the altar of my comfort and convenience. However, that is what so many people do with women, people of color, LGBTs, disabled people, uh, any number of categories. They sacrifice the health, well-being, mm -hmm. and even the lives mm -hmm. of people Correct. in the service of the scriptures. Real saints don't do that. And there will be members in the church mm. that will tell us that their opinion is more important than our humanity, and they need to repent, just mm. like Alma said, yes, and get right with us and get right with Christ. And that's exactly why I have the passion of being able to ask for the things I need. Just like Alma said, it's a commandment. It's a gift of the Spirit. Um, and so standing up for ourselves and claiming our own humanity, despite the people that would use the Scriptures against us, that's the whole point of this parable mm -hmm. is that there are more important things than the Scriptures. And we should really keep that. And that's how Jesus did his own ministry. It was a lot about priorities because there were a lot of his enemies mm -hmm. and, uh, and opponents. They said things that were true, but they had mm -hmm. the wrong priorities. And that happens in the church a lot. Wonderful. Um, and we, that's something that we need to uh, repent of. I, I love what you said toward the end there. So before we wrap up here, just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 years to situated in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows at the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on iTunes or Lyceum or DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. That's DialogueJournal.com slash Podcast Network. Now, Derek, where can people find us? At BeyondTheBlockPodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Yes, sir. Also, a bit of news this week. We started a... Uh, we started a new initiative. Uh, this is in an effort to sustain the work of the show and also to improve it in various ways to further the mission of Beyond the Block to make Mormonism accessible to everyone. So we launched a glow page this week where if you are willing and able, you can throw some coins our way in the form of a monthly contribution or a one-time contribution. Those who contribute anything get access to all the benefits of being in collaboration with us, including access to our collaborator Facebook page where you can interact with us more directly, provide feedback and ideas for the show, uh, access our notes, and just a whole lot more. If you 
don't have any coins to throw at us, you can just share our Glow page on your socials and you can still join our collaborator community. We simply value the effort to give something in whatever way you can. And you can do that uh, by going to glow.fm slash beyond the block. That is glow.fm slash beyond the block. And you can either share that page with other people or you can give directly through that site. Am I missing anything about the glow, Derek? I don't think so, but I just want to say thank you for those of us who already have supported us. And this is definitely a worthwhile investment. We're not doing this to get rich. We are doing this um, asking for money to reinvest in the work of this show so that we can get this out there to more people and have better content and um, and reach more people. And I think that will... Uh, that is definitely worthy of, of your investment. So thank you so much for chipping in. And speaking of thank yous, just want to uh, name these folks that have already joined our collaborator initiative here. want to say a thank you to Bryn Brody, Marcy McPhee, Javi Fernandez, Sandra, Jason Kelly Fulmer, Catherine Esslinger. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Esslinger, you're, you're going to have to send me a message to correct me. Uh, thank you to Monty Hill, Evan Smith, Catherine McGinnis-Class, Josh Higgum, Brittany Romanello, David Doyle, Ed Sarles, Ed Sarles, Colby Kelly, Amanda Isbell. Oh, hey, Charles River Ward, stand up. Uh, Daniel Kokena, Danielle Badger, and also Michelle Barola. I hope, I, I'm, I hope I'm saying that right. You know, Derek, when I was young, like, and by that I mean when I was in college, I always had this fantasy of uh, – becoming a middle school or high school teacher just Uh-oh. so I could pronounce white chi- just <laughs> just so I could pro- just so I could pronounce white children's names wrong and oh no and then Key and Peele went and did it and <laughs> and that was the end of that dream I I felt totally vindicated in that, that that's how I'm gonna get that's how I get back at the man Derek <laughs> oh wow okay well you can pronounce okay. my name wrong if you if it makes you feel better all right how are we gonna do this Derek Canucks. Is there a Derek Canucks here? <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah, well. Oh, and real quick. Uh, also a thank you to David Doyle for uh, transcribing our episodes and to Mara Kemsley to, uh, for editing these long conversations of ours where we keep saying like and um and scratching our beards unnecessarily. Thank you for all the work you do as well on the show. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that makes it so much better. And thank you so much. So uh, thank you guys, everybody, for uh, listening to the show and for supporting it in whatever way you are able to. We will see you next week. Yeah, see you next week. Bye.